Thank you so much for the warm welcome uh, to, to Fort Worth Presbyterian Church. It's a, a real joy for me to be here all the way from Oxford, England. Let me just very briefly say one or two things about myself. Uh, I'm married to Davinia. We've been married for over 22 years, and the Lord has blessed us with four daughters. So my life uh, is pretty dramatic on, on most occasions. Uh, I've got Alicia, who's 18, and Amelia, who's 16, and Beatrice, who's 14, and Arabella, who is 8. I'm the minister of Oxford Presbyterian Church, as uh, Brandon just said, planted in 2018. Uh, Oxford is really uh, the tale of two cities. On the one hand, it is a bastion of hyper-secularism. Everything about Oxford is anti-God, anti-the Bible, and anti-Jesus Christ. It is one of the most progressive cities that you could live in, pushing the envelope of everything liberal and uh, godlessness as far as they can. And that's one tale. But there's another tale beneath that thin veneer of shaking the fist at God is a vacuum of meaning and purpose. And we have found over the last five years through COVID, two years of very extreme COVID lockdowns coming out of that, having just planted the church, we have found many, many young people desperate, desperate for the truth. And when they hear the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, they love it. And I want to encourage you that as Christians in the face of the onslaught of Islam, of liberalism, of progressivism, we have, we have the weapons of our warfare. And you know what it is? It's what the church of Jesus Christ always has. It's his word. It's the winsomeness of a loving church. It's loving our enemies. It's telling them about the Lord Jesus Christ. So keep on keeping on here in Fort Worth. And God is blessing us in Oxford, and my prayer is he'll bless you as well. One other thing before I come to the reading of God's word. If you come to the United Kingdom, I'm sure many of you, you have, the United Kingdom in its cities and towns, and indeed now in its villages as well, is littered with closed church buildings. Or worse, church buildings that have now been converted into uh, mosques, into restaurants, into nightclubs. And the Lord has done something amazing in the very center of Oxford for us. He has, and it's the only instance of this happening to date that we're aware of in the whole of the United Kingdom, a church building, a historic church building that had closed, that had actually become a center for uh, the LGBTQ community, then it become a restaurant, has now become a church again. And it's our church Oxford Presbyterian Church. It's called the Northgate Hall. Please, if you'd like to find out more, there are two brochures out in the foyer of your church. Uh, there's one that just tells you a little bit about the church and one that tells you a little bit more about this historic church building that God has given to us. Do please grab one of those, take them home, read them. I'd love you for to, to do that. And I do have a bi-monthly prayer letter. If you'd like to sign up for that, there's um, a sign-up sheet there as well. Let's turn to God's Word now. And I'm going to read from Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. This is just a wonderful passage of God's Word. Brace yourselves. Buckle up, as we say, because this is just fantastic 
stuff. The whole of Scripture is fantastic, but there are, there, are, there are portions of Scripture where the light of God just shines as bright as it can be, I think, in the revealed word of his truth. I'm going to read from Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Some of you will know the context. Joshua is really the culmination of the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, as God has promised Abraham this piece of real estate called Canaan. And and it's in Joshua they actually get in there. And in Joshua chapter 1, God reassures Joshua that though Moses has died, he's with him. And in Joshua chapter 2, the spies go in, and they are reassured as they meet Rahab. And she comes to faith and professes her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Joshua chapter 3, they cross the River Jordan. And and like with the Red Sea crossing in Exodus, God opens up this river and they pass over on dry land. And then in chapter 4 and chapter 5, they, for the first time for that generation, they do the Old Testament version of what we're going to do after I preached. They, They have the Lord's Supper and they have baptism, circumcision, And the Passover, they celebrate the Passover together. And then immediately after that, we have this account. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Let's read these words. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march round the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant. And let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At 3.52 p.m. on August the 20th, 1940, Winston Churchill addressed the UK Parliament. World War II had been raging for over a year. Hitler had had, had swept through Europe and taken country after country, 
France had fallen, and now he could just look across the 26 miles of the English Channel and see Britain, and he wanted to invade. The battle of Britain was raging in the skies. The valiant servicemen and women were fighting to repel the initial invasion of Hitler and the German forces. Nearly 30, nearly 3,000 British, Allied, and Commonwealth aircrew were fighting to repel Hitler's invasion. And, and, and their eventual success wrecked Hitler's plans and actually proved to be the turning point in World War II for, for, for Allied victory years later. In recognition of the debt of thanks due to these aircrew, Winston Churchill uttered these famous words. I'm not going to put on his accent for you. But he said this to the UK Parliament, never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. When we think of the Battle of Britain, we can only think of the debt of thanks that we owe to the many thousands who lost their lives to protect our shores. When you think of the Battle of Jericho, what do you think? I was taught a song when I was younger. I think this song made it to the, to the United States of America as well. I'm not going to sing it to you, don't worry. But it went like this. Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. And the walls came tumbling down. It's a wonderful song. It's got a catchy tune. But it's absolutely wrong. <laughs> Terrible theology. <laughs> Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. I believe if Winston Churchill was making speeches at the time of the battle of Jericho, he would have said something like this. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to God alone. To God alone. That's what's happening here. That's what we've read. This is what this passage of Scripture is all about. And actually what the whole of the Bible is all about. It is about God who steps into time and space onto the pages of human history and He accomplishes salvation for us. That's the good news of the Gospel. The good news of the Gospel is not come and, and, and work hard and, and if it's good enough, God will accept you. Good news of the gospel is we can't, but God has. He comes to effect and win and accomplish the victory for us. And that's what's happening here. In these pages, as, as Joshua is looking out at, at this, this, that he's got to take the whole of this land. How is he going to do it? He's got, he's got a rabble of shepherds with him who've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. How is he going to do anything? And God turns up, and he says, you're not going to do anything. I am. I am going to fight for you. Don't we all need this? Don't we need this perspective? I know I do. I've been in gospel ministry for 15 years, and I need this more than ever. I need this reminder that it's not about Andy Young. It's not about Brendan Egger. It's not about you. It's, it's about our God. He accomplishes the victory. He is fighting for us. And he does it in Jesus Christ. 
Notice three things from this passage with me. And notice, first of all, the revelation that God gives. The revelation that God gives. I've already hinted at the drama that surrounds this passage of Scripture. Forty years in the wilderness. Finally, they've entered the promised land. They cross the River Jordan, but they've got this mammoth task ahead of them. How are they going to fight these battles? How are they going to rid Canaan of their enemies? And the, the, the passage we read actually highlights the enormity of the task. Did you notice chapter 6, verse 1? Now, sometimes our, our chapter divisions in our Bibles are incredibly helpful, but sometimes they're not, because we naturally think, oh, at the end of a chapter, um, we kind of stop, and there's a new scene happening. That's not happening here at all. Chapter 6, verse 1 is not a new scene. It's the same scene, okay? And we have this parenthetical comment. Now, Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, and none came in. How is he going to take this city? How is he going to take it? Here's Joshua looking out at Jericho, probably scratching his head, desperately praying, I wish, I wish you'd given me some weapons of mass destruction. I could do with some nuclear bombs right now to take this city. How's he going to get through the walls that are impregnable, the gates that have been shut up? No one's coming in. No one is going out. I think there's a sanctified sense of desperation to this passage. Have you ever felt that? I feel it regularly. A sanctified sense of desperation as you look yourself in the mirror and you think, you've got nothing. Isn't it interesting what our world tells us? Young people, great to see you. You know the great message, and by the way, this isn't just for the young people, this is for all of us. But one of the great messages of our world is this, you've got it. You're good enough. You're strong enough. Look in yourself, and you will find the resources to accomplish all that you desire. That is a lie from the pit of hell. It's the worst news you could ever hear because it takes everything and puts it on your shoulders. Come to Oxford, one of the greatest meritocracies in the world, and there are people crushed by that weight. Do you know how many of the students in Oxford are, are suffering under the weight of anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts because the world has told them it's all on you? It's such a relief to go, it's not actually all on me. And here's Joshua in this sense of desperation, what, what can I do? And then this sudden, this mystery man rocks up. And he doesn't just rock up, he's got a sword in his hand. See the drama? Are you for us? Are you against us? No wonder Joshua asked that. Now the question I want us to ask is, who is this person? Who is this person that turns up at this critical moment, this moment of tension, drama, and desperation with a drawn sword? Who is he? Well, there's a few hints, isn't there, in the text. The first hint is the drawn sword. This man comes ready to fight. But not only that, if we know our Bibles, one of the descriptors of God is that he holds a drawn sword. Go to Psalm 45. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. Or maybe fast forward to Revelation chapter 19, and the rider on the white horse who destroys the evil one and casts him into the pit of hell forever, what does he have? He has a sword coming from his mouth. It's a little hint there who this might be. But there's another hint, and it's in his name. What does he say he is? 
In verse 14, I am the commander of the Lord's army. He clearly identifies whose side he's on. He's actually pulling rank here. He's saying, Joshua, the five-star generals turned up. The fight is not on you. The five, I'm the five-star general, and I am fighting for the Lord. And it's worth asking, isn't it, whose army? Where's his army? Uh, you, Joshua can kind of go, just, I don't see any army. Well, do you remember passages in Scripture? Like with, I think it's Elijah with his servant. Is it 2 Kings 6? And he's surrounded by his enemies, and, the, and he's asleep, and the servant comes and wakes him up and says, what are we going to do? We can't get out of the city. And what does Elijah do? He prays, and he prays, God, open my servant's eyes. And he opens his eyes, and he sees that surrounding the army, that's surrounding Elijah, is the almighty host of God's army, the angels, gathered. You know, um, we just celebrated Christmas, haven't we? And we often think of that passage in Luke, Luke chapter 2, where the shepherds are on the hillside, okay? Shepherds are on the hillside. And the way we depict it, I don't know about over here in the UK, it's like a few cherubs floating around, okay, with this wonderful, you know, heartwarming message, peace and goodwill to men. You know, that's an act of war. Every single created angel turns up millions upon millions upon millions of them, and they sing this song of war. That's what's happening. That, that's not a, that's, it's not a passage that kind of warms the cockles. It's a passage that should put trembling in our boots because the army of the host of God has arrived to do battle in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whose army? It's the army of the hosts of heaven. Did you know when you gather for worship, you're not the only ones gathering for worship? First of all, Jesus is here. He promises where two or three are gathered. But the heavenly host is here as well. We don't see them. But they're here, joining in. In fact, worship, the worship on earth, is actually an invitation that is not on earth. By faith, we're caught up into the heavenlies with the hosts of the angels to enter into God's presence and to praise him. Do you notice another hint of who is this here? It's the worship that he's given. In verse 14, now I've come and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servants? See, this rules out one option of who this is. Some people argue this commander of the Lord's army is an angel. Maybe it's the angel Gabriel. It can't be the angel Gabriel. You know why? He receives the worship that is only given to God alone. You know, there are two passages in the Bible where people try to give angels worship, or they misplace worship. So life skill here, everyone. If you ever meet an angel, and you, you, for some reason you've woken up in a really grumpy mood, and you want to you kind of rankle him, okay? Worship him. If there's one thing angels can't abide, is being worshipped. Acts 12, Herod gives a speech, and the people proclaim him as God. And they worship him as a god, and the angels can't take it, and they strike him down. Or in Revelation 19, John gets so confused with the glory of what he's seeing that he worships the angel that's showing him around, and the angel goes, don't you dare worship me. This cannot be an angel. He receives 
the worship that is only due to God himself. And then the final hint is the holiness of his presence. What does he say in verse 15? Take off your sandals because you're on holy ground, just like Moses did at the burning bush. Who is this? Who is this commander of the Lord's army? Well, I hope you're, you're getting the hint. Who is it? It's God. Now I have come. And if you're not convinced, look at chapter two of verse, uh, ch- chapter six, verse two. Same scene, and the Lord capitalized. Yahweh said to Joshua, that's the commander of the Lord's army now, actually speaking, and he's identified as the Lord, capitalized Yahweh, the covenant God. This is none other than God himself. He comes to reveal himself to Joshua. You know, I think we need to push it slightly further. This is God. But this is the second person of the Trinity. This is the Son of God, a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. All the clues point to this. We call them theophanies, or even more precisely, Christophanies, appearances of Jesus. Jesus has arrived, and he has come to fight the battle of Jericho. This is what God gives Joshua to start with. He gives him a revelation of himself. Before I move to my second point, doesn't this challenge our view of Jesus? See, our world is, is kind of comfortable with the kind of latte-drinking, hair-conditioned, smiling Jesus. You know, kind of like the sugar daddy Jesus. He'll do anything you want. He's there ready to please you. We all love that Jesus, don't we? The problem is, it's not the real Jesus. Oh, don't get me wrong. Jesus is more loving and more compassionate and more patient and more long-suffering than we can imagine. But he's also a warrior. He comes with a sword. He demands and commands your attention. He fights. What's your view of Jesus? When you think of Jesus, what do you think? When we meet him in the new heavens and new earth, there will be a combination of of fear and trembling because we are meeting the living one, but also joy and acceptance because we're meeting our Savior who loves us. The revelation that God gives. You notice, secondly, the response that God deserves. How does Joshua respond? Well, we've already seen he worships him and he falls on his face. And this is striking, isn't it? I think God is teaching Joshua and teaching us something about our priorities. See, Joshua wants battle plans. Joshua wants blueprints. Joshua wants to know how should he form the army and and how's he going to pull down the walls and how's he going to win Jericho. But God says, that's all secondary. When I reveal myself, when I come to be with you, you must do something. You must worship me. You must worship me. Did you know this is what God desires first above everything? God has a priority. God has a priority for Joshua, for his people. God has a priority for for, for Fort Worth Presbyterian Church and Oxford Presbyterian Church and every single people in this world. Do you know what it is? That we would bow before him. 
that we would give him all the praise. Have you ever wondered, what, what does God want from me? Let me tell you what God wants from you. He wants you to worship him. He wants you to give him your heart. He wants you to give him your life. He wants you to come and, and declare him to be the only worthy one. This is our priority. You know, if you do nothing else this week, you have already had a successful week. Do you know why? You're here worshiping God. By the way, that's not an excuse to stay in bed tomorrow morning. God does task us and give us opportunities in family and workplace and in our communities, of course. But here's the priority. That's why Sundays are now the first day of the week. It's not the last day, it's the first week. First day of the week, the day when Jesus rose from the dead. That foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth when we will be raised with him. It's the first, the first thing we do in every week is what? Come and worship our God. This is what God desires. But you know what? This is what we need. That's what Joshua needed. Believe it or not, there's Joshua going, how am I going to take this, this city? How am I going to take down the walls of Jericho? How am I going to lead this people? God says, you're asking all the wrong questions. What you need is to worship me. Because that will give you a perspective on everything. When we come to worship, that's what worship is. You know that. Worship is a recalibrating of our everything. Because you and I, we've been out in the world. We've been in our workplaces, and we've been in our homes, and we've been in our families, and our communities. And just the fuzziness, the lack of clarity of what is right and what is wrong and what's most important, what's least important, has, has become to get decalibrated. And when you come into worship, what you're be, what's happening is God has given us that sharp focus again. I rule. I reign. I love you. You're my people. Now I will bless you. We need that every week. We need that reminder. You know, there's uh, an etiquette expert in Britain. You know what I mean by etiquette? You know, what you do when you go out for a fancy dinner and you've got all these knives and forks. Which one do you use first? It's a nightmare. Or if you, if, you know, how do you, how do you dress for certain occasions? And how do you, how do you uh, speak to the dignitaries that you meet? Her name's Emily Post. She received lots of letters about all of these kind of conundrums. And once, now you need to listen up now because I'm sure many of you are going to face this issue, okay? So you need to hear this. She once received a letter and it was written like this. What is the correct procedure when one is invited to Buckingham Palace but has a previous engagement? <laughs> what do you do? What do you do at your, at your uncle's birthday party next Saturday? And you've said, yes, I'm coming. But then the letter comes in the post from King Charles. Will you come for, for, to Buckingham Palace and meet? What are you going to do? What do you do? Emily Post wrote back, an invitation to dine at Buckingham Palace is a command, and it automatically cancels any other engagement. It's true, isn't it? How much more true is it of the command to worship God? Did you know... The invitation to worship God is a command, and it automatically cancels every other engagement. It shows our priority, that we put him first, that we need this life-giving perspective. We need, we need to worship him. That's what we need. You know, mission happens because worship doesn't. That's why we do mission. That's why I'm planting a church in Oxford. 
It's not so that I can plant a church and go, at the end of my life, I planted a church. It's so that those who don't know Jesus Christ would join us in the worship of Jesus Christ. That's what the new heavens and the new earth is going to be about. It's going to be about worship, offering up our bodies in an unceasing offer of sacrifice to him. This is the response that God deserves. Will you, will you show your priority in your life by giving God what he deserves, his worship? A third point, we've seen, we've seen those two things. Just finally notice the reassurance that God provides. Even as God commands Joshua to worship, to worship him, he is at the same time reassuring him. In chapter 5, verse 15, we read, the command of the Lord's army says, take off your sandals, for the ground you are standing on is holy. Now, now read that carefully. It's easy to miss. Where is Joshua? What's the ground they're talking about? Take off your sandals, because the ground you're standing on is holy. Not only is this a reminder of Moses at Mount Sinai at the burning bush, that the same God who was with Moses is now with Joshua, God is declaring something in that statement. He's saying the ground you're standing on is holy. You, you, you know, remember when explorers would, would go into new, new territory? What was one of the first things they'd do? You know, the, the fight to get to the center of the, of the Arctic or the Antarctic. That you take a, a flag, don't you, with you? You take the flag of your country. Didn't Neil Armstrong do this? Correct me if I'm wrong, when he landed on the moon? What did they do? They had a, a United States of America flag, and he planted it. What's, what's he doing? It's as if to say, this is the United States of America territory and ground. It is ours now. We, we, it belongs to us. It's mine. But by God commanding him to take off his sandals because the ground he's, holding, he's standing on is holy, what's God saying? He's saying, this land of Canaan is mine. I already own it. You're worried about taking Jericho? Don't you know the very ground you're standing on? Not just Mount Sinai, my holy, my holy mountain, but the very land I have promised you is mine to give to you. He's reassuring him. Even as he's worshiping, He's reassuring him that the things you're concerned about, I'm already dealing with. And then, and I don't have time to go into the detail here, the Lord takes control, doesn't he? That's why I read from verse 2 to verse 7. What's God doing? He gives Jericho to Israel. See, he says, look, do what I'm going to say. March around this city, shout a few times, and the walls will come collapsing down, and I will give you this city. He's saying, I promised it to you. Look by faith and not by sight. And he even gives him instructions, doesn't he? He gives him the battle plan, which involves them doing very little other than going behind the Ark of the Covenant and marching around the city and shouting for our God. All of this is shouting out to us and to Joshua, I'm with you, I'm for you, I'm fighting on your behalf. I am your God. Stop looking to yourself and look to me. He reassures us that he is with us. Don't you love 
the final, the, the final words of the Lord Jesus Christ in, in the Gospel of Matthew. The final words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And actually, uh, Joshua, the opening chapters of Joshua are very, there's a lot of connections that I don't have time to go into between this passage and the Great Commission in Matthew, the end of Matthew. What are the very final words? He says, go into all the world and make my disciples, baptizing them and teaching them and instructing them. And then he says these wonderful words, simple yet profound, for I am with you until the close of the age. I am with you. I am fighting for you. I am your God. Fort Worth Presbyterian Church, you need to hear this, don't you? I know I do. Our God reigns. He rules. He continues to be with us. He is, he is as much with us now as he was with Joshua then. He is our God. He reveals himself. He would have this response, but he also reassures us. See, Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho, did he? God did. Jesus Christ did. And he is continuing to fight for us and for you. This is your God. And it's what we need, isn't it? We need this life-changing perspective that everything is in his hands. And he is for us and he loves us. Let me end with this final illustration. I've never been to New York. I'm sure many of you have. But I read that on Fifth Avenue, there's a building called the RCA Building. It set a new standard in the 1930s for architectural design. If you walk in, and I've seen pictures of the RCA Building on Fifth Avenue, you go into the entrance lobby, there is a gigantic statue of Atlas. You know the Greek god Atlas? A gigantic statue of Atlas. And Atlas is holding the whole world. Only the whole world is crushing him. He's bent over double, almost crushed to the ground as he strains and every muscle and sinew is straining to uphold the world. If you go over to the other side of the road, of Fifth Avenue, there's St. Patrick's Cathedral. If you walk into St. Patrick's Cathedral, behind the altar there's a sculpture of the Lord Jesus Christ who's eight or nine years old. And he's standing there like this, with the world in his hands. Not, not a bead of sweat coming off him. See the difference? See the difference? Don't be the atlas, straining, trying to uphold your world. When Jesus Christ, with the ease that is his, holds our lives, and holds our church and holds his gospel and says, trust me, I'm yours. I fight your battles. Just trust me. Just come and worship me. Just obey me. I'm your God and I love you and I will fight for you. Trust in this Jesus because he's worth trusting in. Follow this Jesus because he's worth following. Love this Jesus because he's loved you first. Worship this Jesus because there's no one else in the whole of the entire cosmos, worthy of our worship. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we worship you. You are great, awesome, mighty, powerful, loving, kind, 
good, and we love you too, that we don't love you as much as we should, but we ask that you would remind us on a daily basis that you are for us. Help Brendan, help the elders and deacons and members of Fort Worth Presbyterian Church to live and to bask in the glory of this truth that you are God, that Jesus is Lord, and that you continue to fight. And oh Lord, would you thrill us with your goodness and your greatness? And would you thrill our world with your goodness and greatness? Hear us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.